Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Good morning to you. I'm going to be reading from the American Standard Version, which is just as old as the other versions I use, but I, I like the uh, wording in this. <coughs> letter to the assembly in Corinth, as we continue in this letter. Um, pretty long letter. I've never received a letter anywhere near this length, even from the government. So this is a letter indeed, if you will, but it concerns the assemblies of Christ, and that's why everything in it is so important. In the first four chapters of this letter, we see a lot of difficulties, a lot of mistakes being made within the assembly. So we see that, but we also see the Apostle Paul's love and concern that comes, of course, is also duplicated by, by the Lord himself for those people, regardless of them making mistakes or not, because they're going to make some, they've made some, and now they need to, to deal with those mistakes, correct the, those mistakes. I don't know about you, but I've been, um, uh, I've been advised a time or two within the church about the direction I might have been going with things I'm thinking, saying, or doing. It's, it's helpful to try to come back. And that's what this is all about. The assembly that we find in Corinth had, in my estimation, lost their way in a number of very important ways. Not in every way, but in some ways. And in enough ways that it was dangerous them. And this is why the report that came to the Apostle Paul from the house of Zoe, um, I guess it's pronounced, that's the house of, the family of, and they were all apparently members of that assembly within Corinth, the city. And it was very important to respond to those reports, and the Apostle Paul did so. It seems in large part within the congregation, I don't know how large, uh, and I don't, wouldn't speculate because I don't know and it's not any of my business really, but the attitude with the, there was an attitude within the assembly in Corinth, and it was one of arrogance and pride, if you will. Paul uses various words to, to illustrate that. And a lot of it was, they had a lot of arrogance and pride in their own abilities apart from, apart from God, apart from heaven, if you will. And if this continued, it would lead to their 
destruction or separation if not repented of and corrected. So we come to chapter 5, and as I said last week, we're going to see some topics arrive through this letter. Topic arrived, dealt with, arrived and dealt with, that sort of thing within some of these chapters. Now, by the tone of the apostles coming rebuke here in chapter 5, um, we find that the sin within the assembly had become even commonly known even to those outside of the church or the assembly. Um, some of the older commentators, such as, uh, well, I, I always remember reading uh, McGarvey about this, something that was commonly known about the church that was disgraceful even within the pagan community. That was something that was ha actually <clears throat> happening to them. And it's, it's hard to even look at it, but n nonetheless, it's here. But you know, what happened is one thing, but I don't think that's the most important element here. And see if you can catch it. There's something else. Not what happened, but see if it doesn't really really make the, the big issue is about what was being done. Okay? Let's look at the first five verses of this. And Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not even among the Gentiles. That one of you has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and did not rather mourn that he that had done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily being absent in body, but present in spirit, have already, as though I were present, judged him that hath so wrought this thing. In the name of our Lord Jesus, you being gathered together or assembled and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus to deliver, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now a couple of things. Uh, this uh, issue of father's wife probably was a stepmother, most because of the language. There's no word of mother here. It's a stepmother. Uh, it reminds me immediately of what happened to one of the sons of uh, Jacob. And the other thing is apparently the woman, seeing as though she is not rebuked or even mentioned, was probably not, uh, and I'm very sure was not a member of the congregation, was not a Christian but a pagan in, in that area. But here's the thing. This type of sin was not even known or not approved of um, within those outside of Christ. It was, it was, it was repugnant even to the, the Romans, the Greeks, and the Jewish people and they all had laws about these things. 
and, and penalties for such things, for such immorality, as, as they called it. And, you know, there was a lot of things that they considered okay that were shocking too, but this was not. That's what makes it even a worse offense in this way, to be within the assembly, which brought shame on the name of Christ. You see, that's what it always comes back to. It's not just the person involved. It's what does it say about Christianity in general. Doesn't the world associate everything with something else? If you give them enough time, you know, um, like if there's a, a hunger or there's a famine or there's this or that in our world or a flood before it's over, if, not, if enough's not being done, you just wait a little while and pretty soon someone will say it. Where's the church in all of this? How come they're not fixing the problem? Now, does that bring glory to the name of Christ? And in that case, they do not even understand it's not the church's business, typically. But nonetheless, the apostle thus commands. And I don't see this as the su suggestion here. I don't believe the uh, the wording is is to be taken as you can do this or not. I think this is a very stern instruction on what needs to be done and done quickly. So he commands that this sin and the man involved must be removed from their midst. So that's what. Uh, the word excommunication or something's not in here because that's uh, that's uh, that's one of our own words. Put out, uh, but it's even it's even more. I mean, we're talking about someone being removed from the body of Christ for something else to happen. But you see, they were tolerating this sin in the assembly, but they were still quite pleased with themselves in every other way. They were puffed up, as the scripture says. You know, I, I don't know because it doesn't say, but typically things like this are dealt with at least some before it gets to such a point. I don't know if anything was done. I don't know if any uh, anyone tried to talk to this person or bring them out of this or... I don't know. I don't know. All I do know is that they were tolerating this, and it was that, of course, is very, very wrong. But the Apostle Paul would not tolerate it as soon as he heard of it, uh, and he said he is present in spirit. He would not condone it. He's present in spirit and has already judged, which is the teaching that we're going to find about, uh, and I think uh, uh, this chapter and the next chapter it has the dealings with inside of the body like this. But here's the, verse 5 is the remedy to deliver such a one unto Satan, or I think Young's literal has the word adversary, for the destruction of the flesh and, the, and that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Jesus. There's a lot said there. The remedy. Deliver such a one to the adversary. You know, um, 
What is it we can understand about Paul's judgment here, and what does all of this mean? I think there's been a lot of controversy over what actually is being spoken of here. I've got my idea um, that I think is, is accurate. Um, but here's the thing. The first thing is destruction of the flesh. That's what he uh, talks about. Remove them from the assembly. That's removing from the body of Christ. Do you understand the, the, the weightiness of that? That's a real, that's a real uh, state of being. To be in Christ is a state of being. To be removed from that body of Christ is another state of being. And how is it done? It's done exactly as Paul said. Congregation comes together and does so because the man is unrepentive, apparently. It doesn't say, but maybe we can assume that. Destruction of the flesh, secondly, that the spirit of the man may be saved in the day of the Lord. And all this is accomplished by expelling him from the assembly and the kingdom of Christ. Now, I must say that Paul's understanding of this situation runs a little bit deeper than most of the brethren there at that time, or even in this time. I feel the meaning is this, and I base it on the whole of it rather than just point by point. Because of the hoped-for outcome of this person, because there's a, there's a real plus on this, isn't there? There's a real goal. The hopeful outcome of this person was to be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, to not perish, right? To not perish because of this sin. Now, what's it going to take to bring that to effect? If you just... If he, is just, if he just dies and is buried, is that going to accomplish that? I don't think so. So the destruction of the flesh must be a little different than we're thinking of as far as things being undone, if you will. The destruction of the flesh must be the act of this person because I believe he has to be involved in this to have salvation uh, restored to him. His sinful ways, his desires, his lusts, if you will, all of these things must be mortified. He must repent. You see, that's what's missing, and that's what we know of church discipline. It's not you do something wrong, and, and the hammer comes down on the top of your head and you find yourself outside. That's not how it works. That's not the structure of the congregation. Now, there's been all sorts of bad issues and circumstances come from church discipline, but if we follow the pattern of Scripture, it can be beneficial to all, and certainly to the name of Christ. So all of this was because Apparently, the experience of being put outside of Christ was such a lonely and shameful experience that it causes a person to consider and then repent of their 
sinful ways, whatever it may be. So they can be restored back to the body of Christ, to the kingdom of Christ, if you will. Let's look at, uh, and I think we have an indication where this may just have happened. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, about verse uh, 5. This is a letter that was sent to them after this. It kind of, um, he's talking about forgiving. Um, In verse 5 it says, But if any hath caused sorrow, he hath caused sorrow not to me, but but in part that I press not too heavily to you all. Sufficient to such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the many. Apparently the judgment of the congregation. So that contrawise you should rather forgive him and comfort him lest by any means such a one should be swallowed up with his overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you to confirm your love towards him. For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether you are obedient in all things. But to whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For what I also have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything for your sakes, have I forgiven it in the presence of Christ. That no advantage may be gained over us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Let's look at one more verse, Ephesians chapter 2. Verse uh, 1 through 3. This is Paul speaking of these things. I think it kind of clarifies the issue of of sin and, and being done, done with sin. And you, did he make alive? See, that's what happens when, we're, when, we become, when we come into the body of Christ. We're alive. When you were dead through your trespasses and sins, wherein ye once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the powers of the air, of the spirit that now worketh in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all once lived in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You know, the phrase I keep thinking about from the New Testament that I've known since I was a boy is that until we are until we are a Christian, until we are in the body of Christ, our nature is the nature of man, the nature of Adam, if you will. But when we are in Christ, our nature should be more like him. There is a difference, okay? And that difference is shown there in those scriptures about the, uh, the sinfulness and then the removal and then 
living in a new state of being. Living in Christ is living where you never die. You understand that. That's what Jesus was saying to uh, Martha, I believe it was. Or Mary, I can never remember which one he was speaking to. But they both heard. <laughs> that That's the situation. Not only that, being in Christ is living in the rex- resurrection state. That's also part of it. In other words, that's why you should fear not leaving this body behind, as so many do. Here's the thing about this work, though. They had committed a, the congregation had sinned gravely in not dealing with it. How was their, their love towards the Lord if they were allowing this amongst them and they carried his name. That's the point. So this work that of doing something such as this within the congregation, the goal being to actually restore the person that's fallen away or living in sin, that's the work of the entire assembly. Not just a few self-appointed or otherwise somewhere within the group. And only when needed. You see, we've got some folks that would like to specialize in this work if you give them a chance. But that's not how it works. This is a corporate thing. This is a congregational concern and something to deal with. So he goes on here, speaking about this, an illustration to, to show them what he's talking about. And he uses the idea of leaven, you see. A little leaven spoils the whole lump, as, as the phrase goes. And we're looking at verse 6 through 8. And he starts off with the first sentence that is just, this is the, the weight of the hammer coming down, okay? Your glorying is not good. That wasn't a compliment. Know ye not? that a little leaven leaveneth, leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, even as you are unleavened. For our Passover also hath been sacrificed, even Christ. Wherefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Your glorying is not good. And good is, is uh, being good is being in the state of, of being that is pleasing to God. You are doing the things that he would have you do, say, and accomplish. That's good. Remember Jesus' teaching on when the man called him good teacher, see that, that's where we need to start with our idea of what words mean. When the Lord defines a word or when God defines a word, that is the definition we need to go with. You see, today, good, have you ever seen the list uh, of things when they're trying to sell them? Good, better, and best. Wow, good's down the list on there, isn't it? 
Well, see, that's a misnomer. That, that's really not how we should look at it. Um, and the, the use of the leaven here, I think, is very apropos because it's a completion of the thought of verse 2 about the idea that they were puffed up in their own understanding, if you will, using an Old Testament verse. They were puffed up, um, thinking uh, very highly of themselves for a lot of different reasons that we don't really get into until later on in this letter. You see, the manifestation of God's gifts, spiritual gifts, amongst the group there really had turned some heads and had they were having a little trouble understanding maybe what this was all about. Leaven is a type of a type of evil. In other words, it represents evil when considered in the Passover of the Jews, the bread for the Passover. Uh, leaven was supposed to be removed from the house uh, days before. And so no leaven could get into the Passover bread, the unleavened bread. And, uh, of course, that unleavened bread uh, showed the purity, uh, sinlessness as a figure. And uh, leaven would, would be to show that there was some sin within the camp, causing it to swell up. You think Paul under, knew what he was doing by using the, the term puffed up and then bringing the leaven in? I, I think they really think I would get the point, and I'm sure they did. So God uses these figures, these figures all through the Bible to show us what he's talking about, going from physical things that have real spiritual meanings and, and eternal, if you will, um, very important meetings in our lives. Now, in that verse 8, Wherefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You know, those two words are, key, are really key to putting this matter to rest. But they're real heavy-hitting words in the Greek, in, in, in this uh, particular verse. This idea of sincerity isn't just a handshake or a uh, okay or uh, some sort of um, motion that looks like you're on board. No, this sincerity is that your thoughts, your deeds, your heartfelt ways are shaken as though in a sieve, tested, to be found clean and un, uh, unmolested. Clean being the opposite of tainted or uh, sinful in this case. And that sincerity can be held up to the light, not just any light, but the light. In other words, God's, God's light, the light that shows real truth. And it will be approved. That's what the point of this word means. It's a heavy hitter. There's other ideas of this, but uh, this is the one used here. Then the idea of truth, which would be the truth of 
of the group, the truth of the individual in that group, is, is a truth that is in harmony with what would be known as divine truth or God's own truth. That one that one's moral condition conforms to the character and will of God. Let's look at John 17, 17. This is Jesus praying to his Father, speaking. And the things Jesus says in this chapter are profound, to say the least. Sanctify them, by the way, that's the apostles. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Now we've got the whole, all the truth that we need to know is right there. And the Son of God makes sure that we know that God's word is truth. So when the apostle is telling uh, these folks to be a sincerity, their sincerity and their truth need to meet this standard. I think the point is, is well taken. Now the last part I'll probably touch on uh, next week too, the last part of these, these verses. But let's read them uh, and, and look at it because it kind of goes with the idea of um, judging, which is the next chapter, chapter 6. Verses 9 through the end of the chapter. I wrote unto you in my epistle to have no company with fornicators. Now that would have been the letter that was written before this, what we call 1 Corinthians. And apparently there was a misunderstanding in how they were taking it. Not at all meaning with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous or in the extortioners or the idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But as it is, I wrote unto you not to keep company if any man that is named a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolatry or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. With such a one, no, not to eat. For what have I to do with judging them that are, that are without, that is, without, outside of the, the body? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without, God judgeth. Put away the wicked man from amongst yourselves. Now he's coming back to the first point, making sure they understand that putting away that wicked man is imperative for the congregation. With who do we associate as the saints of God? Well, our association is within the assembly and without the assembly. What's our place in those two places? We have to associate with those outside of Christ. Uh, for one thing, we live in the world, but how in the world would we accomplish the mission of restoring or reconciling man back to God if we're not amongst them? See, that's the whole idea of, of so-called 
religious people huddling in one place and not allowing anyone to come near or they go out. Um, a good illustration of that is uh, Kathy and I went to the uh, Amana colonies. And you know, that was their kind of their goal. They were going to all live together. They had these seven little cities, and they made their own everything. So they wouldn't have to go out to the Gentiles for anything else. They didn't want them coming in. They didn't want to go out. Before it was over, they sold the Gentiles a whole lot of sauerkraut. <laughs> so apparently the, the money coming in wasn't near the offense that the people were themselves in, in so there was little evangelism going on, uh, and, and it gets worse. But nonetheless, that is what this is kind of touching on. We live in the world to show we, show, we should be showing Christ and, and the love of God to the world without. Within the assembly, it's, that's easier, you know. And then judging in the assembly and outside of the assembly. I'd say to use a common phrase today, let's stay in our lane. Because our lane is not judging the world. But you know what? It's so much easier to judge the world. I have no problem whatsoever. I can look at that and say, that is bad. <laughs> and I don't like it. Well, that's just my, that's my comment. But I'm not judging those folks because I can't Paul says the apostle says that God will judge the world don't worry about it you show the world the best that God has and let them make their mind up by the way that whole thought just kind of destroys Calvinism doesn't it of course everything in the scripture does but nonetheless this judgment is um, it's so much easier to judge those without the congregation because it gets real personal when it happens within but brethren we're called to judge within the body of Christ for the sake of Christ and the people involved now my, my advice to you uh, on this chapter which is not that easy to deal with is to read it again and again so you get the, the emotional writing of the apostle concerning this issue. Once you have it, you'll have it, and you'll understand the importance of it. It's not what's going on, it's how we deal with it. You understand that? I like to do things that are, that are pleasing to the Lord, uh, for the right reason. All of those things are important. So, with that, I will end my words in this, in this uh, text. Uh, we'll have our song of invitation this evening and, and consideration. As I said, keep reading. You can even read ahead. Uh, you can't read it too much. Thanks to God for my Redeemer.
You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.